You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Today I will present you with the first of three stories that will initially appear to have little in common with each other, besides the fact that they all occurred in the city of Lamars, Iowa, during the Great Depression. Each would gain national attention for something that they did independent of the others, yet as you'll soon learn, they became forever bound together in history by the bizarre actions of just one man. That's a lawyer named T.M. Zink. Zink's story is by far the most famous of the three and will be the focus of today's podcast. The others will be the subject of the next two podcasts, both of which I hope you will find equally interesting to what you're about to hear. So let's get started. Townsend Murphy Zink was born on December 28th of 1858 in Hillsboro, Ohio. While he was still a young child, his parents, that's James and Clarissa, they picked up and moved to Jasper County in Iowa, not too far from the county seat of Newton. Now, he wasn't one for the farm life, so the younger Zink opted to study law at the State University of Iowa, and he received his degree in June of 1883. He then moved to Lamar's, where he would practice law for the remainder of his life. Between 1885 and 1886, Zink served as Lamar's recorder and city clerk. As the years went on, he grew to become one of the most prominent attorneys in northwestern Iowa, and at one point he ran to be a state congressman, but he lost because he's a Democrat in a largely Republican populace. Over his long career, Zink practiced with several different law partners. During the last few years of his life, he partnered with W.J. Cass and Albert Cass of Sioux City as a law firm of, this is going to be really original, the law firm of Cass, Zink, and Cass. This last little tidbit may not seem significant, but it'll play a minor role in both today's story and one of the two future stories. He married Miss Emma Nix on December 2nd of 1885, and two years later, on December 20th, 1887, their only child, that's a daughter named Margretta, was born. Margretta would eventually marry Clarence G. Becker and move off to San Francisco. Sadly, Mrs. Zink died with her husband at her bedside in early October of 1910. He remained a bachelor for the next 16 years before marrying Ida Benison. Now, she had lost her husband seven and a half years prior. The two had known each other for 30 years, and as she would later state after his death, quote, His daughter and mine were the best of friends. She added, 
we were ideally happy. Now that's a statement that will seem oddly surprising as you learn the remainder of the story. On Thursday, September 4th, 1930, TM Zinc was rushed to the Sacred Heart Hospital in Lamars. The diagnosis was gallstones and the doctors concluded that they needed to operate. While a fairly routine procedure today, this was not the case back in the 1930s. The surgery was risky and it was considered quite dangerous. Shortly after the surgery, his condition was reported to be satisfactory, but Zinc took a turn for the worse and he passed away on September 11, 1930 at 72 years of age. Having been such a prominent member of the Lamar's community, his death was front-page news in all the area papers. Hundreds attended the funeral services that were held at his home, which was located at 112 3rd Street Southeast. And if you go to Google Maps, you'll see that it looks amazingly similar today, almost identical to what it looked like in 1930. The September 15th publication of the Lamar's Globe Post stated that, quote, in the passing of Mr. Zink, the city and the members of the bar of this community lose a real honest man of high standing and ideas. An editorial in that same day's paper said, quote, If T.M. Zink had been able to attend his own funeral, he would have been touched by the evidences of affection and esteem which his fellow men have held him. The author continues, There were many who sensed in a greater or less degree his underlying goodness many to whom he had been kind in his unobtrusive way, many who had cause to see his passing with regret. The Lamar Semi-Weekly Sentinel concluded their reporting with this sentence. His name is one that will last as long as the history of Lamar secures a place in any record of moment. If only they could have had the foresight to know just how true those words were to become. Within 48 hours of that statement being set down in ink, the contents of Zinc's will would be revealed and the eyes of the world would suddenly be focused on Lamar's. The document had been drawn up on July 18, 1930, less than two months before his death, and started out like so many others. Quote, I, T.M. Zinc of Lamar's, Iowa, being of sound mind and memory, hereby make, publish, and declare this to be my last will and testament, hereby expressly and unreservably revoking any and all wills heretofore made by me. It was when one reached the fourth paragraph of that document that things started to get interesting. Quote, Pay to my daughter, Margareta T. Becker, the sum of five dollars, provided she shall survive me. Adjusted for inflation, he left his daughter a whopping $73. Wow, that was incredibly generous, wasn't it? In the next paragraph, he continues, quote, I make no provision for my wife, Ida Benison Zink, owing to the prenuptial contract between us, which will be found with this will. If she wanted to continue living in their house, he added, quote, She shall have the option to rent it for $40 per month for such time as she wishes. That will be about $585 per month today. So here we have a very successful lawyer who leaves five bucks to his daughter, and he has the nerve to charge his wife rent to continue living in the home they had shared for the past six years. So just what did he have in mind for the remainder of his estate? First, he requested that the bulk of his estate be placed into a trust, 
and it was to be managed by the Lamar's Loan and Trust for a period of, get this, 75 years, or for, quote, as long as the government of the United States shall exist, and thereafter until destroyed by revolution or other cause. And that's the end of the quote. He instructed that the money was to be lent out in the form of first farm mortgages or invested in United States bonds. Now, these are certainly not the greatest yielding investment vehicles, but they were relatively stable and secure choices at the time. It was estimated at the time of his death that zinc was worth somewhere between $40,000 and $80,000. You know, let that mature for 75 years at, say, 4% per year, and that value inflates to somewhere between $750,000 and $1.5 million. If you do really well, you know, get the trust to get 6% per year, his estate would grow to somewhere between $1.5 and $3 million. And this is exactly what Zink had in mind when he penned that document. And believe it or not, he had really grand intentions to spend that money. And this is where things start to get interesting. He instructed that at the end of that 75-year period, no more than 25% of the estate was to be used for the purchase of a site and for the construction of a non-circulating library. He added that an additional 25% should be, quote, invested in the best, most reliable and authentic books, maps, charts, works of art, magazines, and other authentic works containing all known information and knowledge of science, literature, geography, religions, and all known knowledge of the world. The document continues, quote, No book, work of art, map, or chart shall be excluded therefrom on account of any theory, philosophy, ethics, religion, or language. It being my intention and purpose to establish a library in which all known human knowledge may be found by any man wishing the same. Later in his will, he states that the library would be available to all of those, quote, over 15 years of age, regardless of religious faith, political affiliation, color, race or nationality, or place of residence, except to alien enemies of the United States of America. Now, this all makes him seem like quite the forward thinker, you know, particularly since this is 1930, but he did offer up one big exception. It's a whopper, and it would instantly bring the late TM Zinc worldwide fame. He insisted on the following exclusion to his proposed library. Quote, No woman shall at any time under any pretense or for any purpose be allowed inside the library or upon the premises or have any say about anything concerned therewith. Nor appoint any person or persons to perform any act connected therewith. No book, work of art, chart, magazine, picture, unless some production by a man shall be allowed inside or outside the building. And just in case he didn't make it clear that women could not be involved in any way with his library, he added, quote, There shall be over each entrance to the premises and building a sign in these words, No woman admitted. He continued, quote, it is my intention to forever exclude all women from the premises and having anything to say or do with the trust estate and library. Zink did offer up the following explanation in his will, and this was reprinted in most newspapers across the country, quote, My intense hatred of women is not of recent origin or development, nor based upon any personal differences I ever had with them, 
but is the result of my experiences with women, observations of them, and the study of all literatures and philosophical works within my limited knowledge related thereto. Ouch. All this coming from a man who had just married for the second time six years earlier and was at his first wife's bedside when she passed away, plus he had a daughter. Ida was quoted in the press stating that her husband was, quote, most gracious to them socially, that's the end of the quote, but found women to be difficult to deal with in a professional setting. Sink was very specific as to how the estate would be handled. I don't want to continue boring you with all the details since the will did fill up 10 typewritten pages, but here's a quick overview. The building and the land that the library is to be built upon would be chosen by a group of three men, all of whom had to be over the age of 50. The specific contents of the library would be chosen by an additional three men, and they all had to be over 40 years of age. And none of these six men could be affiliated with any religious organization, and should the library never be built, then the trust would become an endowment for the State University of Iowa's Law Library. Clearly, the sensational nature of the story placed Lamar's on the front page of newspapers practically worldwide. Yet Lamar's had a big dilemma on their hands. You see, if they accepted the terms of Zink's bequest, the town would forever be a tourist attraction. I mean, who doesn't want that? You know, people would come from all around to see the world's only womanless library. Yet, at the same time, it's probably not a great idea for any community to have a womanless library. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that someone was bound to challenge the contents of his will. Now, since his wife had a prenup, she was immediately ruled out as the one to do so. But on October 14th of 1930, it was announced that the lawyer representing Zink's daughter, Margretta, had filed paperwork in district court objecting to the validity of his will. There were nine claims made, starting with, quote, was of unsound mind and not capable of making such will, that's the end of that quote, and concluding with a suggestion that the document was, quote, an insult to American womanhood and of the world, would constitute a libel and a slander and is contrary to public morals. Of course, there's a big difference between suggesting that someone is of unsound mind and actually proving it. Personally, I found his will, of which I've only presented the highlights of here, to be very well written and thought out. It was speculated at the time in the press that it would be very difficult to challenge this thing in court. There was talk in the press that a settlement might be reached between Margretta and the administrators of the estate, but that was never to be. The state's attorney general was gearing up for a possible fight. You know, they could have, if this all fell through, they could have had this money for their law library, but that also never happened. Instead, when the case made it to court the following March, that's March of 1931, surprisingly few witnesses were called to the stand. And only one of them had a major impact on the case. That's Dr. George Donahoe of the State Mental Hospital in Cherokee. He testified, quote, Mr. Zink was suffering from a classic case of sexual paranoia, which is a form of insanity that is chronic, progressive, and incurable. He continued, quote, his obsession was on the female sex. He displaced the ordinary conception of God with a female creatress who was malicious, capricious, and thoroughly unreliable. 
She has created men for her own amusement and invented women for the same reason she invented diseases, wars, and calamities, for the sole purpose of tormenting men, which gives her pleasure. But for all the creatures' inventions for the harrying of men, the most efficient is women. Dr. Donahoe supposedly learned all this by studying letters that Zinc had penned to both his daughter and other people. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The attorneys for neither the city of Lamar's, the county, or the state offered up any challenge to Dr. Donahoe's claims. And with that, on March 7, 1931, Judge C.W. Pitts handed down his ruling. It is hereby ordered a judge determined and decreed that the said T.M. Zink died in a state and that the contestant herein to wit, Margreta T. Becker, is the sole and only heir at law of T.M. Zink, deceased. And that brought an abrupt end to the Zink womanless library. It just was never to be. His daughter was to get everything, although it was revealed in court that the value of the estate had dropped significantly since the Great Depression hit. At best, Zink's holdings were now worth $25,000. But the deepening worldwide economic crisis and an ever-growing legal bill were sure to reduce this by an even greater amount. By the end of the year, the value of the estate had dropped precipitously to about $10,000. Yet there were still legal challenges to deal with. On Thursday, July 2nd, 1931, Zink's widow Ida filed a claim for $2,929.83. She claimed that since June of 1925, she had paid all the household expenses, which included the electric bill, groceries, restaurant checks, everything. Commenting on this, coupled with that prenup agreement she had signed when they first got married on February 28th of 1925, a visitor to the court said, quote, Any man who can get his wife to sign such a contract and who can get her to pay his living expenses may be a judge crazy by the court, but he ain't so bad just the same. He's crazy like a fox. In late December of 1931, it was revealed that a copy of a promissory note for $10,000 had been filed in probate court and then quickly withdrawn. It was payable to a woman named Irene Brown, and the note was supposedly signed by Mr. Zink in April of 1930. No one was sure if the document was authentic, but if it was, payment would effectively wipe out every single dollar that was remaining in his estate. The biggest problem was that no one could locate Ms. Brown. She just seemed to have vanished off the face of the earth. As you'll recall, Zink chose the Lamar's Loan and Trust to handle his estate, but in the end it was a good thing that the will was invalidated. Like so many others during the Great Depression, the bank went belly up and was taken over by the state banking department on February 4th of 1933. 
And since Zink was both an investor and the vice president of the bank's board of directors at the time of his passing, his estate was named as part of a lawsuit that was brought on by the depositors who had lost their life savings. The courts determined that steps had been taken by the bank officials to avoid payment to the depositors, and as a result, the Zink estate was ordered to pay $1,000 in stock liability. Yet it wasn't all bad news. After a diligent search, Zink's daughter Margreta and the administrator of his estate, that's H.R. Schulz, they determined that his former law partners in Cass, Zink, and Cass had ripped him off. An agreement was reached where the partners would pay the estate $20,000. On May 12, 1937, the body of T.M. Zink was disinterred from the cemetery in Lamar's. He was reburied next to the grave of his first wife in Manchester, Iowa. Zink's second wife, Ida, passed away in her apartment at Lamar's Union Hotel on October 7th of 1940. His daughter, Margreta, went on to live a long life. She died in April of 1979 at 92 years of age. It's nearly impossible to determine how much she inherited after all the dust had finally settled, but surprisingly, it was later learned that much of this litigation could have been avoided. On January 9, 1935, it was announced that a notarized deed dated August 25th of 1920, that's 10 years before Zink died, it had been rediscovered. In it, Zink had conveyed all his property, both real and personal, to his daughter. It had been hers the whole time. In my first book, Einstein's Refrigerator, I wrote about attorney Charles Miller, who died in 1926 and specified a number of humorous bequests in his will. The most famous of which was his request that the remainder of his estate be given to the Toronto woman who gave birth to the greatest number of children in the 10-year period following his death. The baby derby was still ongoing when Zink penned his will, so I can't help but wonder if quite possibly TM Zink was attempting to pull off the same type of practical joke. I guess we'll never know. If you're wondering what became of Irene Brown, you know, the woman who claimed the $10,000 note against the estate, or what happened to Zink's properties, at least one of his properties, after it was transferred to his daughter's name, I'll answer those questions in the next two podcasts. Let's just say I have two excellent stories that involve the near hanging of a judge, martial law being declared, famed lawyer Clarence Darrow getting involved, a missing husband, a woman buried in the backyard, and much more. If you live in or around the Mars, you may already have a hint as to what's to come. For all the rest, let's just call them Lamar's Part 2 and Lamar's Part 3 for now. I don't want to give away anything just quite yet. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. You know, when you ask folks to name the best of anything, you just can't expect them to agree. And that is what makes this news all the more amazing. When we asked thousands of folks from coast to coast what home remedy they liked best to relieve misery and distress of colds, practically all of them answered, why, Vicks VapoRub, of course. They knew from their own happy experience what wonderful relief from distress of colds VapoRub and its famous penetrating, stimulating action can bring. You see, when you rub VapoRub on your throat, chest, and back, it penetrates. Penetrates direct into the cold, irritated upper bronchial tubes with its special, soothing medicinal vapors. 
And at the same time, it stimulates. Stimulates chest and back surfaces like a warming poultice. Now, this penetrating, stimulating action of VapoRub keeps on working for hours to help relieve the coughing spasms, muscular soreness or tightness, congestion and irritation in the upper bronchial tubes. And often, most of the misery of the cold is gone overnight. Now, remember this. Be sure you get the one and only VapoRub, because only VapoRub can give you this special penetrating, stimulating action. The best-known home remedy for relieving miseries of colds, Vicks VapoRub. That commercial for Vicks VapoRub is from the October 2nd, 1944 broadcast of the Matinee Theater Radio Program. This particular episode was a production of the classic Wuthering Heights. The series was an attempt by CBS to bring quality dramatic performances to its listeners on Sunday afternoons. The show was first broadcast on October 22, 1944, and last aired on April 8th of 1945. If you've ever wondered just who Vic was in Vic's Vapor Rub, well, I'm going to keep you guessing, no one knows for sure. There are two stories floating around about where the name comes from, so I'll tell you both and then you can choose your favorite. It is known that its inventor was a man named Lunsford Richardson. No Vic there. In 1880, he moved to Selma, North Carolina to work for his brother-in-law, Dr. Vic. Hmm. Richardson had a great love of chemistry and he soon became the pharmacist at Dr. Vic's medical office. And that's where he started tinkering around with that formula that would soon become VapoRub. In 1890, Richardson moved to Greensboro, and sales of a number of his specially formulated concoctions started to take off. He named his company Vicks Family Remedies. Some say he chose to name the company after his brother-in-law, while others claim that he took the name after perusing through a Vicks Seed Company catalog. I'll let you choose which one is correct. Just how many of his magical potions actually worked is anyone's guess but his product line included Vicks Little Liver Pills, Vicks Chill Tonic, Vicks Turtle Oil Liniment, Vicks Tar Heel Sarsaparilla, and my favorite, Vicks Grip Knockers. Now, Grip was an old-time name for what we commonly call the flu today. But one of his products sold much better than all the rest. That was Vicks Magic Croup Solve, and it was a mixture of menthol, camphor, eucalyptus oil, and some other minor ingredients in a petroleum jelly base. A sick person would simply rub the salve on his or her chest and his soothing vapors would be breathed in. In 1911, a decision was made to discontinue all of the products except for the Magic Croup Solve. It was at that time that it was renamed Vicks Vapor Rub. It was the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918-1919 that turned the product into the blockbuster that it is today. Vic sales went through the roof and their Greensboro manufacturing plant had a difficult time keeping up with demand. Sadly, it appears that its inventor, Lunsford Richardson, was a victim of the pandemic and he died in 1919. This stuff was of no help to him. His son Smith took over the company, which was sold to Procter & Gamble in 1985. In other news, here are a few additional stories that have something to do with employment. 
56-year-old George Kasinkas had been down on his luck since he emigrated from Lithuania to the United States back in 1915. Fast forward to March 16th of 1950, and we find George unemployed and living in a flop house in the Bowery. While visiting a pool room on East 10th Street that morning, a man came up to him and asked him if he wanted to make some money. All George needed to do was push a cart and deliver a load of art supplies. Of course, he agreed, he was handed a slip of paper with the address, and off he went. He started out at 11.30 that morning, but he never arrived at his destination. So the shipper, a guy named Philip Byrne of the S. Root Company, contacted police to report that both the courier and the goods were missing. He thought he was ripped off. George was finally located by a detective early the next morning. Believe it or not, he was still pushing his cart. (laughs) It seems he had zigged and zagged all over the city, showing person after person the slip of paper that he had with the address on it, because it turns out he couldn't read. It was estimated that George had pushed the 630-pound or 286-kilogram cart approximately 13 miles or 21 kilometers in total. Confused, he finally stopped the detective at 3 a.m. in the morning and showed him that slip of paper. It read, Marilla Company, 328 East 234th Street. The officer, of course, uh, called in and he found out that an alarm had been issued to locate George. And that's when it was realized that everyone had been misreading the handwritten address. It read as East 234th Street, but really said East 23rd Street. George and the missing supplies were transported back to their intended destination and the whole matter was cleared up. Mr. Byrne rewarded George with $25 for his efforts. That'd be about $250 today and the press chipped in an additional $5. He planned to use the money to get a shave, a haircut, and to quote, sit down for a while. On July 24, 1955, the New York State Labor Department ruled that a man who had been fired from his job as a swimming pool attendant was entitled to receive unemployment compensation. So we're probably wondering why was he fired? Well, he refused to shave off his Van Dyke beard, which he had grown in order to obtain employment as an art class model. The local labor department refused to allow the unnamed man to receive unemployment benefits, so the pool attendant slash artist model appealed to the state. In the ruling, the arbitrator handling the case said that his firing was, quote, an unwarranted infringement upon his privilege as an individual in a free community to present such an appearance as he wished as long as it did not affect his duties adversely and did not injure the employer in his business reputation. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know. From previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day, it's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily 
wherever you get your podcasts. And lastly, in late February of 1964, Daniel Price, who was the manager of the Occidental Restaurant in Washington, D.C., received several complaints from customers who had become violently ill after eating a meal there. He investigated and determined that each of the patrons had been served by the same exact waiter. That was 23-year-old Herbert A. Talmud. Around the same time, Talmud approached the restaurant's assistant bookkeeper, John R. Hewlett, and said that their office manager, Simone Moran's illness, would quickly pass. That's when Talmud offered him five packages of a powder that he said he had put into Ms. Moran's tea, and he could have it for one dollar. Unbeknownst to Talmud, the manager Price had already contacted the police, and they instructed the bookkeeper, Hewlett, to buy those packs, which of course he did. Analysis of the powder determined that it was an emetic that induced violent vomiting, and they also said that an overdose could be fatal. So Talmud was arrested and he was charged with assaulting Simone Moran with a poison. Not surprisingly, it was discovered that Talmud had been dismissed by the previous two restaurants that he had worked in after they received complaints from customers of being ill. Now before we go, here's a question for you. Since we're almost into summer here in the Northern Hemisphere and gardening season is almost at its peak, do you know what was the original name of Better Homes and Gardens magazine? Now, since you probably don't know, I'll give you some choices here. Was it One Century Home, Two Fruit Garden and Homes, Three Gardener's Magazine, Four Home and Garden Journal, or Five Home Builder and Garden Magazine? I'll quickly repeat those. Uh, was it One Century Home, Two Fruit Garden and Homes, Three Gardener's Magazine, four Home and Garden Journal, or five Home Builder and Garden Magazine. We might be surprised to find out that the original name was Fruits, Gardens, and Homes. The magazine was first published in July 1922 and sold for 10 cents, which would be about $1.50 today. An annual subscription would set you back a whopping 35 cents. 25 different issues were published under that original name, but in an effort to gain a wider audience, the magazine's name was changed to Better Homes and Gardens in August of 1924. Its original circulation was about 150,000 copies. Today's readership is estimated to be about 39 million people. That's a big increase. 79% of its audience is female, and the median age of one of its readers is 49. An interesting tidbit about the magazine was that it was created by Edwin Thomas Meredith, who had previously served as the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture under President Woodrow Wilson. It is still published by the Meredith Corporation. Lastly, I'll mention that Better Homes and Gardens is the fourth best-selling magazine in the United States, and that's behind the AARP Magazine, the AARP Bulletin, and the Costco Connection. But if you really think about it, those first three are part of another service where people actually choose to subscribe to Better Homes and Gardens. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I hope you'll tune in the next time for the next two episodes, actually, which are related to this story uh, about TM Zink's uh, Womanless Library. 
Now, those stories do stand on their own. They are totally independent, but they are related in some way. So I'm not leaving you in great suspense here. If you did like today's story, you can find more on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And of course, in my two books, they're written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. You can go to Facebook and like the page. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.